I hope you have your Bibles with you. One of my favorite parts of every sermon is to ask you to open up the Word of God to Matthew chapter 7, in this case. Matthew chapter 7, if you could open that up, we're going to be looking at verses 21 through 23. This is an incredibly sobering part of the Sermon on the Mount. And while you're opening that up, let me tell you about hunting season. It is hunting season. It is deer hunting season. I do enjoy that. I do enjoy hunting. And I remember growing up in Little Derider, New York, in central New York, every year there was a farmer who set up a decoy buck. It was about a 10 or 12-point buck. He always set it up about 125 yards off the road right across from his house. And every year, hunters would stop. They would see it. They would stop. They would pull over. And they would take their gun. This is central New York. They would take their guns out of their vehicle, stand on the side of the road. Sometimes they'd be really good by putting their arms down on the hood of their trucks or their cars for a stable point. And they would blast away at that deer. They really thought this was a real deer. This was their easy, quick kill of a trophy buck. The most interesting part, however, was that the farmer, John Fox, was also one of our town's two judges. And he set those, that deer up every year to see who was going to do that. And there were many a people in Derrida, New York, that got to meet John Fox, Judge Fox, face to face as he would come out of his house to confront the poacher. Well, Jesus is about to give us his second caution. I told you last week he's going to give three cautions. And this second caution is going to involve a courtroom. It's going to involve a judge and a great many people who are as fake as that decoy buck. And here we go, verse 77, chapter 7, verse 21. Let's read it. You read it. Follow along as I read it, if you would. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, someone last week, after the message, asked me if I thought that false prophets knew that they were false. Do false teachers, do false prophets... Do false pastors know that they're false? And my answer is that in rare cases, or except rather in rare cases, I believe that they're self-deceived. I don't think they generally know they're false teachers. So we get to Lord, Lord. Now when you see the Bible repeat itself like that, be a student of God's word. You've got to take notice. This is the Bible's form in the absence of grammatical devices of putting an exclamation point. Lord, Lord. It's an intense verbal profession calling the Lord Jesus kurios, which is the Greek word for master, one who's in authority. So we've got, a, we've got people giving a profession of faith to Jesus not some esoteric, abstract notion of a higher power, but to Jesus. Now, let me tell you a little a bit of a history lesson. Weekly across America, by the way, this is in other parts of the world, there is featured in the worship service 
a part at the end called an altar call. Probably all of you have seen these. It's where the pastor closes a sermon, music typically begins, and the pastor begins to exhort people to come forward to make a decision for Jesus Christ, to make a profession or to give a profession of faith in order to get saved. And that happens all over America every week. They sing Just As I Am, Harvest Time, sing a lot of songs, by the way. And I've been asked, why doesn't Cornerstone do a regular altar call? And I want to answer in part by telling you that it is an invention that came into being about 300 years ago. George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, John Wesley passionately called people to come to Christ by faith, but they never, ever heard of an altar call. See, altar calls at first were for people to receive after the message, after the meeting, further understanding, counseling, or prayer. That was the original reason that pastors gave an altar call. And then something happened in the late 1700s, early 1800s, at camp meetings, which took place all over frontier states like Kentucky, Tennessee. The message would be done and people would be crying out. People would be swooning. They would be shrieking. They would be weeping in tears. And the pastors believed, and it probably could have been, a product or the evidence of the Holy Spirit at work. But these began to diminish in 1805. Altar calls were started at that point to begin to measure spiritual responses. The father of altar calls was Charles Finney, who called fearful sinners to come forward and sit on an anxious bench. He had an anxious bench for those that were in anxiety because of the weight or the content of the sermon. And he would stare at them and he would look at them and he would begin to speak specifically to them and he would call them to decide then and there to get saved. Now you've got to know something about the theology of Charles Finney. He believed, and I'm quoting him, a revival is not a miracle. Now that right there ought to alert you. By the way, let me give you a really quick lesson about hunting, and that plays back into false teaching. If you're you're a hunter, you know this. You're up in your deer stand, and you have your own spot that you go to probably a dozen, two dozen, three dozen times a year during hunting season. And you get so attuned and so immersed into your environment. You know where every stump is. When you first got out there, you thought, is that a bear? And all of a sudden you realize it's a stump. And then when your eyes see it again, 10 visits in, it's no longer going to give you that racing heartbeat because you know it's a stump. When you hunt for a while, all of a sudden, anything new in your environment, like a deer coming, immediately gets your attention because you know your environment so well. The more you know the Word of God... The more you are a student of the Word of God, the more quickly you will be alerted when something is spoken to you that is not of the Word of God. So Charles Finney says, a revival is not a miracle. Immediately, your mind ought to be alert. 
He goes on, it is a purely philosophical result of the right use of the constituted means. In other words, so to bring people into the faith, the preacher just needs to learn to know and use the right techniques. That's exactly what Charles Finney taught. Now, while Finney fathered the altar call, Billy Graham perfected it. And it was the means for my own fathers. Now listen, you need to know this. It was the means for my own father's moment of salvation. I believe I can owe my salvation to Billy Graham who led my father to Jesus at an altar call. Yet for thousands and thousands of people, a prayer prayed in an emotional moment never evidences a changed life. And yet they believe and they point back, but I prayed that prayer at that church service. I know I'm a Christian. Where's the evidence? Faith without works is dead. So Paul clearly, the Apostle Paul, clearly explains how a person will be saved. I don't know if you could get more clear than this. Faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Here's what he says, Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that means kurios, that means master, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now here's the most overlooked part of that verse. Ready? Look at that verse. Look at that conjunction and. Most people miss this. Many confess with the mouth that Jesus is God and that he died to save people and he's the rightful Lord and the King of Kings. But not many confess that Jesus died to save him or her and is their rightful Lord. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart. It's one thing to profess. It's another thing to believe in your heart with a changed heart. See, they stand, those who do the first and not the second, they stand at the narrow gate, wanting the life that leads, that it leads to, but they will not step foot on the hard way, verse 14 of this chapter of Matthew 7. Now, let me just sum up briefly what I just said. There are many who make a profession of faith. Lord, Lord, verse 21. But they do not believe from their heart. They do not trust from their heart. There is no evidence of a change of salvation from their heart. Now what this forces us to do for every one of us. You ready? It doesn't matter how old you are or how, how young you are. It doesn't matter how many times you've been to church, how much you've read of the Bible. You have to do this. I have to do this. Right now, where are you with Christ? Have you professed him as Lord, Lord, and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead? You will be saved. You know, there was a time right after Christ where the title rabbi changed its meaning. Meaning. It was after 70 A.D. that Jewish teachers were popularly known by the title rabbi. 
Which is why the era after that time, A.D. 70, became known as the rabbinic period. Now some of you are going, oh my goodness, why do we need to know this? Well, it's kind of interesting. I'm going to bring it back to Lord, Lord. So listen to this. The meaning of the word rabbi changes. Jesus died A.D. 30, A.D. 33. We're not sure exactly when, right around then. Roughly 37 years later, the name of the, the title rabbi changes the meaning. Prior to Jesus, teachers really were never called rabbis. They were called sages. It was undergoing that change. It's not like A.D. 70 clicked over on the calendar and they just decided, hey, let's change the name rabbi. There was a many, many year process of this title being changed. But before Jesus, well, it began, they began to be called sages. And you might be wondering, well, why then in 15 verses in the Gospels is Jesus referred to as rabbi? Well, it was common, even before Jesus was born, for disciples to address their teachers as rav, R-A-V. Those are Hebrew letters when you, when you transliterate it into the Greek, R-A-V. It means master or great one. In the Hebrew language, the letters B and V are interchangeable. So R-A-V is R-A-B. Now, Rav was the same word that a slave would call their master. But when you add the letter I to it, R-A-B-I, making rabbi or rabbi, I means my, that's what the letter I means, you get my master, you get my great one. Now, after 70 A.D., and I'm going to bring all this to a close in just a minute. After 70 A.D., the title rabbi took on the meaning of a teacher. But the earlier sense, when Jesus was here, was it meant my master. Which is why the New International Version renders Matthew 23 this way. The scribes and Pharisees love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have only one master, and you are all brothers. Now, you might have the English Standard Version. Virtually every other version says teacher instead of master. If you go to Strong's Concordance, you look up this word in the Greek, it most commonly means, over 40 times, master. That one master was himself, and he expected the obedience of his Talmud, his disciples. And if his disciples were going to honor him with the title rabbi, it was to be accompanied by their obedience. Which is why Luke chapter 6 says this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? So let me bring all of that to a summary. The word rabbi most often meant, at the time of Jesus, my master. And Jesus is saying, many will call me Lord, Lord, but will not do what I've said. They're not true disciples. They don't really see the conjunction and. They profess to know Jesus, but they don't believe him in their hearts. They've seen the narrow gate, but they've also seen it's the hard way, and they won't step foot on it. You know, when Jesus said, follow me, to his disciples. That was a Jewish idiom. 
It meant come and be with me as my disciples, submit to my authoritative teaching so that you could become just like me. Did you know that about Jewish discipleship? That when a rabbi said to a prospective student, come follow me, the expectation is you submit to everything I'm going to tell you and the goal is I'm going to make you just like me. But here, Jesus said, many were asking to be his disciples, promising to submit, saying, Lord, Lord. But they were mere words. They didn't translate into obedience. So here we go again. Are you saying, Lord, Lord? I'm speaking to each one of us. Are we saying, Lord, Lord? Are we making a profession of faith? Yet there's not an obedience in our lives. Now, I'm going to tell you at Liberty University, I heard a guy, Bailey Smith, who was a traveling evangelist, came in, and he preached such a convicting, I don't know if I want to say convicting, such a hard sermon that almost all of us on Liberty campus, 4,400 students, all doubted our salvation. That's not my aim. My aim is to get you to, to test yourself. Are you making a profession of faith? And is there the evidence in your life that you're learning obedience? Is there a desire in your heart to be obedient? You can't just say, hey, I made a prayer when I was five years old to ask Jesus into my heart. And the rest of my life, I've kind of lived the way I wanted to. Well, there's no evidence of salvation in that. You're in verse 21. You've said, Lord, Lord, but you're not doing what he's telling you. And it moves us to ask the question, likely on our minds, does Jesus mean that, that salvation is something that you gain by working for it, doing the will of God? Do you earn your salvation? Well, the answer, quickly, is absolutely no. You cannot earn mercy. You cannot earn grace. By definition, they're freely given. And that's going to unfold. This reality is going to unfold very subtly in the next two verses. So let me address that subtlety for a moment. In the Bible, now this is a bit of a, a, a little bit of a teaching thing for you. Ready? In the Bible, you need to know that revelation progressively is revealed. So in the Old Testament, if you read the Old Testament and you stop at the book of Malachi... You're not going to come away really with a thorough, robust understanding of the Holy Spirit. Because that's going to reveal more and more as you walk through the Bible. By the time you get done with Acts, you're going to have a very robust understanding of the Holy Spirit. And then when you get into the epistles, you're going to have a deep knowledge of the Holy Spirit. But you won't get that depth really in Genesis Revelation is progressively greater as you walk through the Bible. This is true as you start from Genesis and move toward Revelation. It's true from Matthew to Revelation. It's even true, now listen, it's even true from the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew to its end. So what did I just tell you? Because it's, I'm going to really unload it right now in this statement. But let me tell you what I just said. In the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew... We know so much about Jesus, but by the end of the Gospel of Matthew, you're going to know so much more about Jesus and why he came and what he was doing and how to be saved. Now, 
Matthew, as well as the entire Old Testament, must be seen through the lens of the cross. You don't get to the cross until the end of the Gospel of Matthew. And once you get there, all of a sudden, all the chapters of Matthew preceding it snap into clarity. And I'm going to show you progressive revelation in Romans 16. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was best, that was kept secret for so for long ages, but has now been disclosed. The secret that was kept for ages has now been disclosed or made known. This is what scripture does. So all of a sudden we're going to see some disclosure of truth in two hints that Jesus gave that's going to answer the question, is salvation earned? And I've told you the answer is no. Now watch what Jesus says. Number one, and you can see it on your outline. The the self-deceived are their own defense attorneys. Now you're going to see this super clearly once I point this out. On that day, many will say to me, verse 22, Lord, Lord, did we, pro- did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Now listen, true believers that are standing before Jesus, they're not going to be declaring to him all that they've done for him They're going to be praising him for all that he's done for them. Now let me say that again. When you're standing, Christian, before the throne of God, and you're standing before the person of Jesus, you're not going to be declaring to him, but Jesus, I did all of this for you. You're going to be praising him, Jesus, you did all of this for me. The fact that they're declaring all that they had done for Jesus shows you the place of their hearts, the condition of their hearts. Their motivation is pleading from terror and foreboding. You see, they've already heard the judgment of Christ. Now it's their defense. He's already said, get away from me, I never knew you. But they're defending themselves now. They've become their own defense attorneys. By the way, Job from the Old Testament longed and pleaded for somebody to mediate his case before God. He said this in chapter 9, There is no arbiter, there is no mediator between us who might lay his hand on us both. He wanted someone who was on the level of God and on the level of man who could mediate his case. And he had nobody. But all of a sudden, in progressive revelation, Paul says to Timothy, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ, Jesus. Job was longing for Jesus. The many, verse 22, standing one day before Jesus, they're there utterly without a mediator. They have no one that's laying a hold of God and man, and is an arbiter for the case. They just have Jesus, their judge. Do you know that Jesus will be doing the judging? Here's what it says in John 5. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. So there's going to be a day when every single human being will stand before Jesus. And he will separate the goats from the sheep. 
The sheep represent those who professed and believed. The goats professed, perhaps, but did not believe. And he separates them. And friend, you and I, if you are a Christian, when you stand before Jesus, let me ask you, what is your confidence? And what do you base your confidence? If you're basing it on a profession, I made a prayer when I was five. I made a prayer at camp when I was 16. But your life has never shown evidence of that profession. There's never been the and conjunction and believed in your heart. Then you're going to stand before Jesus defending your case. And are you going to appeal to your religious activities that you performed and your seemingly good results from it? And people listened to your teaching and you made a difference in their lives and you preached the gospel. You helped the poor, you started churches, you organized relief efforts, you went on mission trips, but you have no mediator and the evidence is you're left to defend yourself. You've made a profession, Lord, Lord, but you do not do what he says. How different, Christian brother and sister, for you. Because you will not need to defend yourself at all. For Jesus has no condemnation for you. You had come to him in faith. You made a profession and your life bore out the evidence of it. You had the conjunction and you believed in your heart. You trusted in his death and his resurrection to take away your, your guilt. You will not need to speak on your behalf or claim your good works. You will be rewarded for what you have done for the glory of Christ and you will be ushered into heaven. But there's a second point, very subtly, that I want to draw your eyes to. The self-deceived, secondly, are rejected by Jesus. Look what he says in verse 23, and then I will declare to them. That word declare, declare is a legal term. It means to confess. It was a legal action in a court of law. I will make a pronouncement, a verdict. The self-deceived professed their allegiance to Christ, but he confessed he never knew them. Now we're used to, now I think we all have probably done this, we're used to wondering if somebody knows Jesus. But that's the wrong trajectory. And Jesus corrects it. The critical question is, does Jesus know that person? Because listen what he says in verse 23, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The, the, the critical question is not, do you know Jesus? The, the question that's far more eternally weighted is, does Jesus know you? Now, God has all knowledge. He's omniscient. This isn't a question of, is God aware that you exist? That's not what it means. The word know is relational knowledge, it's intimate knowledge. As a husband knows his wife or a wife knows her husband, it's familiar knowledge. That's the way this word is used in the Greek in the Bible. The emphasis, however, is on never. So Jesus says, I have never at any point had a relationship with you. Yes, I know you said, Lord, Lord. I know you did all these works, Judas. One of my disciples sent out two by two to cast out demons. Judas did all of this. He preached the gospel. 
He preached messages. He did miracles. And yet Jesus never at one point ever had a relationship with him. A saving relationship. See, the evidence is what he says in verse 23. is that these people were workers of lawlessness. Let me remind you that Satan is in the business of deceiving people. 2 Thessalonians 2 says this, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. You see, false prophets and teachers and pastors are the devil's workforce. Listen to this. This was in the 4th century from St. John Chrysostom. He said, the road to hell is paved not with good intentions. That's not St. John here. He said, it's paved with the bones of priests and monks and the skulls of bishops are the lampposts that light the path. These are the very people that are preaching. These are the very teachers of the Bible. And they're leading people astray. They're bypassing the narrow gates and they're moving them to the broad gate that leads to destruction. They're workers of lawlessness. But nobody, now listen, nobody is ever going to be able to stand before Jesus and make a worthwhile, erstwhile claim, the devil made me do it. You will never be able to do that. That will not hold legal water. Because people are deceivable, he says, in 2 Thessalonians, Paul did, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Listen, anybody that does not go to heaven and goes to hell, refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And what that means is that there is in every person a nature of sin that is hostile to God. The problem is sin. This is the great problem of human living. And sin is much deeper than a behavior. You cannot, you cannot define sin completely by saying it's what you did that you shouldn't have done or it's what you didn't do that you should have done. It's not definable by behavior. That's not the definition of sin, not the full one. Sin is more than a mistake. It's more than a misdeed. It's a heart of rebellion. It's a heart that craves the throne. It's a heart that wants to manage God. Sin is cosmic defiance against God. And to recognize that you are a sinner is to understand that these mistakes and these misdeeds are typical of me. They're not accidents. They're not anomalies. They're not periodic. This is the way my heart pulses. You see, to be a sinner is to be flawed at the very deepest level of humanness. Now, I'm going to tell you something very, very interesting. At least I think it is. Beatrice Webb was one of the main architects of the British welfare system in the early 1900s. She was phenomenal. Everybody respected Beatrice Webb. In a, in a day where women did not get respect by men, even men respected Beatrice Webb. She was extremely wise and extremely influential. Now here's what's happening in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. Are you ready to listen to this? 
the technological age is exploding. Mankind is making advances faster than they have ever done in cumulative hundreds and hundreds of years. And there emerged in that advancement of technology called the technological age, there emerged the age-old, this has always been in the human heart, it emerged in this age-old this age-old confidence in the ability of mankind to improve themselves. Now, did you hear what I just said? I just defined humanism, basically. Humanism is the philosophy that you have the ability to improve yourself morally so that you can become excellent in nature. That's humanism. It's the lie of all of human history. And it was peddled by liberalism, listen, in and outside of the church. Preachers were preaching humanistic sermons. The society in the early 1900s was touting the human ability to be excellent in virtue and nature and to improve yourself. But Beecher's Webb who believed this, who was an architect of this, finally wrote in her journal what I'm about to read to you. Somewhere in my diary, I wrote, I have staked all on the essential goodness of human nature. Now, 35 years later, I realize how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts in man. How little you can count on changing some of these. For instance, the appeal of wealth and power by any change. You cannot change them by the social machinery. No amount of knowledge or science will be of any avail unless we can curb the bad impulse. What Beatrice Webb calls the bad impulse, the Bible calls the nature to sin. Now, the reality is this, you ready? And because some of you, if you're really a deep thinker, are thinking likely along these lines, people can reform their habits. Like addictions or stealing. There's drop-down drunks that can stop drinking. But they can never remove the bad impulse. They can never remove the sin nature, that flawed, deep part of every person that is inclined toward evil and not good. It is, as Chris Lungard, in his book, called the enemy within. He called it the evil at the elbow. It is just part of your nature. It is part of who you are. It's part of who I am. See, the Bible, again, calls this a sin nature... And that nature will never bend the knee to its only Savior, Jesus the Lord. Now, did you hear what I just said? Because this is extremely profound. You cannot redeem the sin nature. You cannot redeem the world system that opposes God. You cannot redeem the devil. They are irredeemable. The cross kills the sin nature. The cross, Jesus on the cross overcame the power of the world. Jesus rendered mute the power of the devil. You're not going to redeem any of those three enemies of our, of our Lord. You're not going to redeem any of those enemies of us. The sin nature is being killed. It has been given the death blow. It is dying slowly. One day it will be eradicated from all of us the moment we are ushered into eternal glory. 
But how is that answer, how is that even possible? An altar call. I mean, I could do it. I've done them. You know, when we do altar calls, it's usually here to ask you to, to ask Christians to respond by repenting or confessing or praising or giving a prayer request. But I could do altar calls for salvation, but an altar call by itself won't change that nature. And neither will the workaround of fabricating your self-righteousness by doing religious and good things. You're not going to change your sin nature by doing a lot more good things in life. The only change, the only power to overcome the sin nature is the good news of the gospel. Here's the good news of the gospel. You ready? Boy, I tell you what, if you can remember anything from this message, here's what you want to remember. Because this is what you ought to be declaring to your friends. Jesus became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And the moment you turn to Jesus believing in your heart that he is your Savior and he is your Lord, the Father takes your sin and he charges it to Jesus, listen, as if he committed all your sins. Did you hear that? This is profoundly true. The moment you put your faith in Jesus, the Heavenly Father, like the days of the priests, like the days of the Father who laid their hands on the head of the sacrificial lamb, the Father takes all of your sins, he puts them and charges them to Jesus as if Jesus committed all your sins. Think of all the most heinous things you've ever done. At the moment of your faith, Jesus was charged as if he did all of those most heinous things and at that same exact moment he takes all of the righteousness of Jesus and he charges it into your account he credits it to you as if you lived the sinful blameless life of the son as if you said no to sin and temptation at every moment of your life that's how the father views you because of jesus that's the good news of the gospel you're not a sin bearer jesus is you are justified. You know what justified means? You are declared right. Do you know why you can be declared right, Christian? Because you've been regenerated by the Spirit of God and made right. But this legal transaction where Jesus was charged with your sin as if he committed all your sins, and you were credited with his righteousness as if you lived the life of Jesus, this legal transaction, it's not the, the decoy buck 125 yards out in the field mimicking the real thing. Listen, this is real. He gives you a new heart. He gives you a new mind. He puts inside of your heart the Spirit of God. Jesus lives in you, Christian, through the Spirit of God, and he pulses power. He gives you new desires. He helps you have the want to to do what you ought to. So that you will learn to be obedient. See, this is relational obedience by God's grace that says, Lord, Lord, and does the Father's will. And when you stand 
before Jesus. There will never be a need to defend yourself. There will never be a moment where you need to fear. For he has no condemnation of you. Now some of you might be saying, well I know I don't need to fear. But man, when I'm standing before him, I know I'm a Christian. I have made that profession of faith. That conjunction and is in my life. I believe in my heart and my life is bearing out the resemblance of Christ by his grace more and more. But I know when I get before him, I'm going to be quaking. No, you're not. He will remove all of that fear because perfect love casts out fear. This will be one of the greatest days of your life. And he has rewards for you. And for his faithful servants, he will speak those coveted and treasured words, well done, well done, my good and faithful servant, my true disciple. I'm going to tell you my greatest fear as a pastor. This is it by far. I am not exaggerating this. This has always been my greatest fear as a pastor. Not that I would preach a bad sermon. Not that you would ask me a theological question and I wouldn't know how to answer it. That's nothing compared to this. My greatest fear as a pastor is that some of you could come week after week after week and you could hear these messages over and over and over, yet you have deceived yourself to believe you're saved because you made a profession of faith. You said, Lord, Lord, but you never ever believed in your heart and it has not changed your life. You don't even know that one day you're going to stand before him and you're going to plead your own defense. And he will say to you, be gone. I never knew you, not once. That's my greatest fear. So what do you do? Well, I think Paul gives us a very good understanding. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Have you done more than made a profession? Just praying a prayer is not it. It's a life of faith. As the evidence that Christ knows you. And because he knows you, he has given to you his righteousness and a new heart. And he lives in you by the Spirit. And he's giving you the want to, to do what you ought to. The power to live obedient to God. And it's an increasing measure that that unfolds. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Friends, let me end by asking this. Do you believe in Jesus? Are you trusting in him for your salvation? And are you living out the evidence of that because the Spirit of God is living inside of you? Let me pray that God will give you clarity. Let's pray.